Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. We have a big announcement that we're pleased to make, and that is that the fact that Politicon has become our new partner. James has been to every Politicon event since the McKinley administration, and we are very proud to be partnering with them on this podcast. So check out Politicon.com, follow them at Politicon on all social media, and we're excited to grow the show with them moving us forward. I want to thank all of you for sharing the news about this show your friends and family, please don't forget to also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, our guest is United States Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, one of the Democrats' leading voices on expanding economic opportunities, former mayor of Newark. He's also a member of the Judiciary Committee. Senator Booker, thank you for joining us. Mitch McConnell, the king of hypocrites, you said his hypocrisy is astounding. He sat on the nomination of Merrick Garland for 10 months under false pretenses, and now he's going to rush through the Trump nominee in weeks. But, Senator, it looks like he's going to get away with it. Well, I don't know if he'll get away with it in the long run. We win back the United States Senate and we win the presidency and hold the House. We have a whole set of uh, options that we can do to begin to undo the, the damage that he's done. So, Again, this could be a short-term gain for him, uh, but it could really awaken a lot of folks in this country to understand that these naked anti-democratic power grabs uh, are uh, are really threatening things that people find precious, like their health care, like their right to organize in a union, uh, like their access to the ballot itself uh, with voting rights. So this could be a great wake-up moment. You know, I talked to Governor Newsom yesterday, last night, about California, they had this awful proposition that got passed uh, um, that really woke a lot of people up and especially engaged uh, Latino Americans, Latino Californians in the political process like never before. And they have never gone back uh, to to allowing the Republicans to run that state. Well, Senator, that's really a critical question you've just raised, because what the Republicans are claiming is that not only are they going to win this as far as the court is concerned, but that a uh, getting a right wing, uh, you know, majority is going to energize their voters on November 3rd. And this is a godsend for Lindsey Graham and Joni Ernst and all those. Do you think the Democrats will be equally, if not more energized? Uh, Because in the past, sometimes that hadn't been the case. Well, again, I can only speak to my hopes. The only metrics I have is the significant increase uh, of donations, both small dollar donations and large dollar donations organically that have gone on to senators. Uh, We've seen a much greater increase for Democrats uh, than we have for Republicans. People are angry. And in fact, the majority of Americans, over 60 percent, believe that this this Supreme Court seat should be left until after the inauguration of whoever the next president to 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 take that oath is. So I I I'm hopeful. And you know, too often we realize, and this is what Martin Luther King wrote about so eloquently in the letters from the Birmingham jail, where he he just said it's this the, the issue for him was not the KKK or the White Citizens Council. He was more concerned about moderate people who are doing nothing, you know, who sit on the sidelines, even though there are really consequential issues there. And this is one of those moments where we have to ask ourselves, Uh, For me, my generation, people that were born around 1970, this is our great moment. We weren't asked in my generation to storm beaches of Normandy or to do freedom rides knowing our buses would get bombed and we would get beaten. This is our moral moment. And will we stand on the sidelines or will we 
uh, and be bystanders or we'll be upstanders and get in and involve ourselves with all of our time, resources, uh, and, 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 and uh, energy that we have to try to help our country at this moral crossroads get on the right path. Senator, we mentioned earlier you're on the Judiciary Committee. The chairman is Lindsey Graham. He used to have a reputation for fairness, integrity, working with colleagues. No longer. What happened to Lindsey? I, I, that is a question that, that he's going to have to ask. And I, 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 I really believe that it's one that, that uh, he's going to have to look in the mirror and really ask himself. Because in this most recent case, we see him directly contradicting himself. I mean, it, it couldn't even be more bald. He, he tried to use the Kavanaugh hearing as uh, that changed him. But we have him on tape subsequent to the Kavanaugh hearing speaking specifically to this idea that if for some reason there's a Republican president and a Supreme Court vacancy, uh, that he believed that he would not, he said clearly that he would not fill that seat. And he literally went as far as to say is, you know, use my words against me. So uh, look, he, he, he told us that his word, what his word was, and he's now directly violating his word. And so we know that across the spectrum of the Republicans who spoke in the way that Lindsey did, that that honor is not something they will be upholding, that they have different rules, rules that in effect, they've given Donald Trump a, when it comes to the Supreme Court, a five-year term and Barack Obama a three-year term uh, uh, with which to nominate. And that to me is patently unfair. And I think the American people know it. And I do think there's consequences. I don't think you can just get away with something like that. And the fact that that race, his reelection race is now within the margin of error uh, is a good example of, of what it's costing him. James. Senator, do, do, I have a memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, where Trump actually used you as, as a straw man to scare suburban women. Is it, am I correct? Or is it, uh, you you are correct. His last two rallies, I think two days in a row, he's been calling me out uh, during the rallies as if I was going to be some kind of boogeyman that would scare suburban voters. And let's be clear, suburban white uh, women, I think, right. is who he's trying to scare using the right. uh, big six foot three bald black guy in the Senate. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, I don't so, mean to laugh. It's not funny, but it is funny. Anybody well, it is funny. It, there, there is humor. It, it is almost funny. But, but the poignant part of this is, I don't know if you know my history. In 1969, uh, I was born uh, here in the spring uh, in D.C. And my parents were trying to move during that time to New Jersey. And they were looking for the districts that had the highest performing public schools, which happened to be white communities in the northern part of the state. And every time they would look at a home, they would be turned away because of the color of their skin. They would be lied to. And what happened was some great activists, uh, mostly white folks, said, we're going to help you. And they began sending couples to pose as my parents. After they were told the house was sold, My the white couple would come and see if the house was still for sale. And the house I grew up in a white couple actually put a bid on the house. The bid was accepted. On the day of the closing, the white couple didn't show up. My dad did in a lawyer, and the real estate agent didn't give up. He punched my dad's lawyer in the face, signed a dog on my dad. And so we moved into this incredible community based upon the sacrifice and struggle and willingness to literally shed blood for my family. And we grew up, uh, as my father used to call us, the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. And 18 years later, you know, I was president of my class, honor roll, and a high school All-American football player. The older I get, the better I was. Uh, and, uh, um, and that's my suburban story. And so for him to be dredging up the worst bile of our politics, the darkest corners of fear-mongering and race-baiting and 
uh, demagoguery, trying to pit Americans against other Americans. Uh, this smacks of uh, it worse than a Willie Horton, uh, uh, worse than the kind of uh, uh, naked uh, uh, appeals that the Republican Party, unfortunately, is being more and more known for. And we need to reject it. And I think suburban Americans will reject it because he's not doing well, as you probably know, James, amongst suburban white women. All right. Let's move on. Uh, I'm very intrigued by something that you ran on. And Albert is, too. And I want to talk about baby bonds because I think this has some some real potential to address you know that sometimes I, I tell my students you know the, the solution for a lack of money is well money <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have money you know people that have money always say oh money's not that important well if you don't yeah. have any it's very goddamn important if you got a lot well it's you know so just talk to us kind of briefly and concisely about your idea of baby bonds and how they yes work. Quickly, the, the, the American tax code is used over $650 billion every year to help people with wealth get tax breaks to create more wealth. So we shift $600 plus billion, uh, and it's things I agree with, like the mortgage interest deduction, but that's used by people to make over a quarter million dollars a year predominantly. Uh, so why don't, why don't we use our tax code to create wealth amongst those that don't have it? Paychecks help you get by. Wealth helps you get ahead, and it's generational. So this is a plan that simply says every child born in America has an American birthright. You get an account with with uh, with with one thousand dollars in it, and every year up until you're eighteen, you get amount placed up to that, depending on the wealth of your family. The poorest kids, one out of six children in America is in poverty, would get up to two thousand dollars in there, and it would go all the way down to the richest kids getting nothing. And and by the time that a child is 18, if they're poor, below the poverty line, they could have upwards of $50,000 in that account. And no matter how much you have, some kids would have 18,000, 20,000. You can use that money when you turn 18 on wealth building endeavors. You could use it for college, to buy a home, to start a business. And what we know about that actually is it has an incredible uh, a platform for every child to give them a stake in a free market economy. But it also has the collateral benefit of closing the racial wealth gap, meaning that every, because there's more wh- poor white kids and there are poor black kids, but you know that there are disproportionately more uh, uh, poor black kids in terms of percentage. And so it would actually close the racial wealth gap in America and give every child in terms of just wealth an equal playing field uh, for which to go forward. And, and that's something that's really promising. This is one of these game changer ideas that would give every American as a birthright a chance to build wealth in this country, which is really what helps people get ahead. And by the way, it has a collateral benefit. The more wealth you build in America, the more wealth there is uh, and multiplies, reverberates out into the society as a whole. I, I just think it's terrific. And as I understand it, it would apply equally to a kid in Appalachian, Eastern Kentucky, as it would to a child impoverished in, in Newark, New Jersey. I had that exact conversation with Joe Manchin. His state would probably, uh, I think he's had one of the highest child poverty rates in West Virginia, right. would benefit the most. And they're disproportionately, as you know, very, not as many, not that many black uh, uh, right, children right. in that state, period. Right. Well, you, James, I, James, you and I totally agree. I think it's the, one of the most innovative ideas to come out of the primaries. Senator, uh, Joe Biden isn't talking about it much. Have you talked to him about talking about this more? You know, the first time I had a conversation about him was on the stage in, in, in a debate it was off camera during the commercial break. He puts his arm around me and he goes, God, I really like that baby bonds proposal. And so it's on his radar screen. He knows about it. 
uh, and we've we've obviously talked about it. So I'm hoping it's something that's going to catch momentum. And the great thing is, is I'm racking up co-sponsors in the Senate on the Democratic side uh, at, a, at, a, at a pretty good pace, talking to moderate Dems as well as uh, more progressive Dems, because I think that everybody gets this understanding we're a capitalist society. Here's a chance to give everybody more of a fair shot. How would you assess the Biden campaign so far? And is there anything you'd like to see him doing a little bit differently? Well, I, I think that you have to understand that there's no rule book for a campaign during a pandemic. That's for sure. And I, I, I just think that they, they're making the best out of a situation. And, um, you know, I think Trump is making a horrible mistake going into the debates, uh, trying to portray him as an aimless elder because that means you've now lowered the bar that Joe is going to overperform in, in the eyes of people. I think that uh, Joe Biden has been disciplined in talking about uh, the issues that Americans care about, even with this Supreme Court issue coming up. He's trying to keep it focused on the pandemic and focused on issues like health care, which was the driving issue of the 2018 campaign. So I've been I've been impressed about their discipline and their focus. And they're, you know, look, giving enough uh, rope to Donald Trump, who every week seems to make unforced errors uh, in how he's handling the pandemic, uh, how he's handling the economy and uh, just uh, doing the kind of things that turns off those uh, uh, moderate voters in America. Senator, let me ask one more and then turn it back to James. That is a Republican plan, as I understand it, is probably to take this nominee to the floor the week of the 26th, the week before the election. And their hope, if they if they if that materializes, is that that will detract attention, divert attention from COVID-19 and all the Trump failures. Uh, do you worry they get away with that? No, I, I don't worry. I, I just don't think the uh, the oxygen that the Supreme Court uh, nominee is going to take is going to be enough to distract people from what they're feeling. I mean, we, we now know uh, from uh, recent polls that came out uh, about how much people are hurting economically. Uh, uh, the kitchen table economics is just not working, how much people are in financial fear, the food lines are still so long. And unfortunately, COVID is not going away, as he said, magically. It is still a real issue affecting lives. 200,000 Americans have died and, and it's growing. And I think that the more people who know folks who passed away, the more the folks are still being inhibited in what they're able to do, visiting their grandchildren, going out. I think these are real things that show uh, that people are discontented with and they fall squarely on the plate of the one of the greatest failures in leadership on the planet Earth because America is such a, a profound outlier on how we handle this pandemic, how badly we handled it. So I actually think that the issues are with us from economic issues to healthcare issues. Uh, and frankly, I, I think a lot of people are yearning for civility and decency. And that is so thoroughly embodied by Joe Biden um, that I think he's, he's the right man uh, to carry this message. So there's going to be hundreds of hours of cable TV advice on how the Democrats should handle the hearings in the Judiciary Committee. And I don't know how many columns will be written. What are you going to be advising internally is to the strategy of how, how Democrats should go about questioning the prospective nominee? Well, I, I want to be candid with you that we're literally having these discussions right now. And, 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 and Democrats. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just one of these folks on the belief that this is the high, a lifetime appointment on the highest court in the land. And there are a lot of real issues. Uh, the Trump judges have astounded me 
you know, saying that Brown versus Board of Education is not settled law. Their belief in uh, the rising supremacy in American culture of the of the corporation over individual rights. Uh, so I, I think pulling a lot of that out, so America sees how 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 conservative, how right wing this judge is, uh, whoever they nominate. I imagine that's the 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 bill they're going to fall in, and what it would mean to Americans' autonomy over their own bodies, health care their uh, ability to stand up against corporations and corporate power and monopolistic tendencies. Uh, a lot of the kind of uh, uh, Bork, he, I always say that he was a Supreme Court justice that failed to get on the Supreme Court, but his ideology so shaped right-wing uh, uh, jurisprudence uh, that they've really pulled us away from uh, the courts that a lot of Americans on both sides of the aisle still are praising, that they have their individual rights, that they have their uh, civil rights, that they have their voting rights, and a lot of the gains that were made in my parents' generation now under attack by the very Supreme Court that helped to secure them. I mean, what a shame we are in America that John Lewis, uh, God rest his soul, uh, literally bled the Southern soil red for voting rights and uh, achieved uh, one of the great uh, pieces of legislation to pass through the United States Congress signed by a president, the Voting Rights Act, and then to see it gutted by the Supreme Court that now uh, really seems, as, uh, as Justice uh, Ginsburg so powerfully wrote, that in the middle of a rainstorm, uh, wants to say that, hey, since we're not getting wet, let's get rid of the umbrella that, that gave protections to African-Americans in a lot of, a lot of states that needed uh, uh, that, that uh, section that's called preclearance uh, for voting rights uh, changes. So we're, we're seeing the gains of our parents and grandparents be eroded by this court uh, and I think Americans should understand that that's happening. And I think that having one of these hearings is an opportunity for us uh, to draw out just how conservative this judge is and what it will mean to American society. So I guess the, the big question is that, you know, what role should Senator Harris play in this? I mean, she is the vice presidential nominee. She is on the Judiciary Committee. She's a, a very accomplished uh, lawyer. Uh, and she's very good at this kind of thing. The, do you think the caucus will give her an enhanced role or some people say, well, maybe she should take a, a less than enhanced role and be out campaigning? Do you, do you have a particular view on this? I know it's kind of a difficult question to ask a, a fellow senator, but do you have any general observation of what you think the role of Senator Harris should be in this? Well, I, I think we got to keep our eyes on the prize. And so I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, it, it, most likely we're going to do everything we can to stop it. But most likely this justice will be put on the court. Uh, and that means that uh, we have to win this next election, both the Senate and the, the White House, uh, in order to uh, uh, be able to undo any damage that they're doing and have, have a lot of a whole suite of options we'll have. And so I just want uh, the vice presidential nominee and, and the presidential nominee of our party to do everything they can to keep that as their first priority. Now, now maybe that means that she should come back and sit next to me uh, like she did in the last Supreme Court nomination and do the job that she does so aptly well. Um, so I don't know what the timing and circumstances is going to be, but they have to make the decision about what's best for what I think is the most important election of our lifetime and perhaps of the last century. And I hope they make that decision accordingly. I, I'm very impressed with your answer because the answer is whatever it takes to win the election, that's yes. the most important thing we could do. Okay. Yes. We have an excellent chance to win the election, a less than an excellent chance of stopping this nominee. And yes. I hope yes. that's, that, a, that's a more I hope salient you take way to put that it. message back to the caucus. Yeah. Yes, sir. 
Yes, sir. I, I, boy, James, that's you. You nailed it, Senator. You, we, we have uh, taken longer than we promised. You have, you, you are not only a great senator uh, and uh, a great uh, representative of your state, but you were a great All-American football player. Uh, <laughs> and we can't thank you enough for today. We appreciate it. Be no, safe, no. and we Listen, hope you can I, come can, back. Can you again. do me a favor and allow me one last uh, minor filibuster before Absolutely. I go? Absolutely, please, as long as you want. Uh, well, James Car- Carville, uh, I, I've listened to him tell a good talk tale from time to time to illustrate a point. And if you don't mind, I'm going to just tell you a short story about what I think this point is. And so I I was, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of these places, but three blocks from where I live in Newark, New Jersey, we have this place called McDonald's. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, when I'm working in New Jersey, uh, there's a great man named Kevin Batts who drives me around and uh, we were coming home from a long day of work. Now, we've been in the car together for years. And he's a former police officer, served in the military, grew up in the Newark projects. We don't have to talk even that much. We know each other so well, just a glance in the rearview mirror, eyes meeting. He, he often knows what I'm thinking. And so as we're passing by this McDonald's, uh, our eyes meet and, I, and he sees me hang my head in shame. And immediately he knew what I wanted. He, I wanted to go through that drive through because the flesh was weak and he could tell. So we went through that drive through now, gentlemen, I'm a vegan, and, and one of the best ways to know if somebody's a vegan, how you know it is you just don't need to say anything. They'll usually tell you that they're a vegan. Uh, but I wanted to get some McDonald's French fries. Uh, uh, and as we drove through, I got my two McDonald's French fries, held them like they were the most precious thing on, on the planet at that moment because all I wanted to do was get home, unbuckle my pants, sit on my couch, and, and watch some bad TV at the end of a long day. And I saw out my window, though, a guy rooting around in a trash can. And uh, I know you two are gentlemen uh, raised in faith. And and my faith says something about if you have two McDonald's French fries and your neighbor has none, I think Jesus said something about that. (laughs) Maybe it's the sermon on the McMount or something. But I rolled down my window and offered the man one of my fries. And and it was a a good moment. He seemed really grateful. and and, And I felt good connecting with somebody of equal dignity. Uh, that we could have a moment like that uh, where, where, where we got to share. And, but then he changes his question. He says, uh, uh, it, it makes a point to me, he goes, sir, do you have any, do you have any socks? Now, I, don't, I, I knew immediately he must have had something going on with his feet and really needed socks, uh, but I don't carry socks in my car. And I looked around vainly and said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't. And then I turned my head straight, looked at the rearview mirror, with, which was, I thought, the signal for Kevin to drive. But Kevin doesn't drive. Kevin puts his car in park, uh, rolls down his window, reaches between the steering wheel and his legs, takes off his shoes and hands the guy the socks he was wearing. And at that moment, I realized I was three blocks from my home where I have a drawer full of socks. I wouldn't miss one if it was gone. And I had a moment to help somebody and I didn't take it. In fact, that man, those socks were worth more to him than any of my possessions, probably any of the clothing I had at home was worth to me. And I say that story because I really think that's where we are. It's not a matter of do are the majority of Americans supportive of uh, of Joe Biden. I know the majority of Americans are. The majority of Americans I know want uh, the Democrats to control the Senate. Heck, even we're in the minority right now. We got 15 million more votes. We account for more than the Republicans. Uh, the question is, is, is how much of a moral imagination are we going to use in this moment to do, to do more as the opportunity presents itself? Will we just uh, do a little, like I gave the gentleman my fries, or will we take off our socks? Will we use our moral imagination to find a bigger and greater way to contribute to a moment that demands it? 
because it may not be you that's suffering right now, but this is an election that is going to deeply affect millions of Americans, whether they can have a, a prescription drugs or not. Maybe you can afford your prescription drugs, but there's somebody whose ability to get their life-saving drug is going to be determined by this election. Maybe you have health care through your work and through your job like I do, but some American, this is going to determine whether they can keep their health care or not. Uh, maybe you are, are, are somebody that is has their liberty, uh, but this is going to determine whether somebody who is in a nation of mass incarceration is going to get justice or not. There are so many issues that affect your fellow uh, human in, in America. And so I just hope that your listeners, who I know are probably already committed to the cause, uh, don't do like me and, and just give their fries, but but go bigger and, and take off the damn socks and, and, and give it all in this election because generations yet unborn uh, will feel the magnitude of their generosity if we all put it out there. Well, if it takes your socks, uh, take off your socks, but win, you're right. Senator Booker, you've been a fabulous guest. Uh, we hope you'll come back and visit again. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye now. James, our next guest, as you know, Sean McElway, the executive director of the uh, Data for Progress, one of the most influential, uh, I guess I would say really left wing. I don't think that's I think that's a complimentary term for you, Sean. Uh, figures, young figures in the in the uh, among Democrats and uh, American politics. Uh, you really are influential, interesting, particularly with young people. Are you OK with the Biden campaign so far? I know you've endorsed it, but how's it going? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of backseat quarterbacking um, of the Biden campaign. Uh, but, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. And uh, as of now, they have maintained a consistent lead um, over Donald Trump. And they have shown a incredible willingness, from my view, uh, to work with progressives. Uh, we're not always going to agree. Um, but the climate plan that the Biden campaign released um, really looks it to be within the framework of, you know, what Inslee and Warren have been pushing this sort of big investments in clean energy, clear and defined standards, and a focus on the frontline communities that are most affected by climate. Sean, help me. I, um, I, I, I think James is probably close to this. I've always thought of myself as pretty liberal. Uh, I favor uh, much higher taxes on the wealthy, a public option for health care, controlling drug prices. I, too, am pleased with the Biden-Harris climate change goals. But, but, but there's a fault line that I probably fail. Uh, and, and what would it be? That, that you would fail? Yeah. You, you know, sort of a traditional liberal, if you will. Oh, my God. Let me count the ways. Well, give me the best three. <laughs> uh, my guess is you probably don't support Medicare for all. Right, right. Uh, what do you think about abolishing ICE? Uh, I, 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 I worry about it because you got to replace it with something, and I haven't seen something that could sell politically and be effective. And uh, where are you in the Green New Deal? You might pass that, that test. Close. I'm certainly with the Biden-Harris climate change, which moves, you know, uh, a, a significant step, you know, closer to that. You know, I probably and and James weigh in on this too. I probably would differ with you on any kind of immediate ban on fracking, but that would be for crass political reasons. There you go. I mean, I think I think you're you're close. We can work on you and get you all the way there. There's um, hope. Can I tell yeah, my kid that you said there's hope? Yet. There's hope for you yet. <laughs> so, Sean, I've been following you for some time and, and kind of intrigued by this. And I, I saw the profile of you in Atlantic by Elaine Godfrey, who's a kind of journalist source friend of mine. 
And I'm, I'm want to pursue this conversation that we had with, with Al because I'm more of a traditional liberal than a, a young progressive. But the climate thing, being from Louisiana, is probably the most affected state there is. And how, how aggressive do you think we can be on this? And what are some of the more aggressive things you think that you and I could agree on to deal with this issue? Because I think it's just, it's, it's just awful. Yeah, well, I think that one of the one of the stronger progressive issues and one that we work on a lot is the idea of climate change, um, but specifically the idea that the best way to solve climate change and create a sort of politically viable um, uh, coalition is to you know spend a lot of money on clean energy infrastructure and investment. You know, infrastructure is something that is always popular. Uh, it's something where there's lots of demand. Uh, this is a way that we can move a lot of money, create a lot of jobs. And to be entirely honest, it makes the law rolling in the Senate easier. Um, every member can see the ways that the, the climate change uh, and clean energy money is going to benefit the voters of their state or district. And if we spend a lot of money uh, and create a lot of jobs, people will see the, the upsides of addressing climate change um, and not just the downsides. And right now, it's cheaper than ever for the United States government to, to borrow money if needed. Um, we could easily uh, set up a national infrastructure bank, a clean energy infrastructure bank or investment authority uh, that could you know, leverage lots and lots of government money um, to make long, the long-term investments that we need to you know, ultimately save our economy um, as well as our country from the effects of climate change. And, you know, as the Democratic Party is increasingly invested in racial equity, um, this is an opportunity as well to, to target the lower income communities and communities of color um, that we know are disproportionately affected by the pollution um, that fossil fuels uh, create. So let me bring up the N word, mucula. <laughs> OK, what, what, what's your view of that? Um, our view of that is certainly that decommissioning nuclear uh is probably not going to be a good idea at this time. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think we realize that any sort of bill that comes through the Senate is, is going to involve some compromise. Um, and we've put out an uh, innovation and investment paper um, that talks about how we can invest and innovate in carbon capture and storage, um, as well as nuclear. Um, you know, deals are going to have to be made and I think for progressives, if we're seeing that real commitment to standards uh, that decarbonize our economy um, and we see a real commitment to the communities of color and low income communities that are disproportionately impacted, um, you know, we're going to have to get to, to 50 votes at the end of the day. Albert? Uh, I want to make sure, Sean, that my son Benjamin doesn't tell me I'm a cop out because uh, I have to acknowledge I have had some real criticisms uh, of, for lack of a better term, the movement left in the past. And I think, you know, you've assuaged me uh, on this year. But I think in back in 2000, you were only in grade school. But your parents' generation, when they took a dive, some of them took a dive on Al Gore. It resulted not that he was perfect. It resulted in. Uh, John Roberts and Samuel Alito, and when some didn't get behind Hillary, whatever her defects were, it resulted in Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and now probably a new court nominee, who affect all kinds of people that you care a lot about for generations. Is a lesson been learned, or is it just that Trump is such an existential threat? Well, I I certainly have learned a lesson, um, and I have been advocating for 
progressives to understand themselves as, you know, members in good standing of the broad democratic coalition. You know, one of the things that's frustrated me um, about a lot of the rhetoric um, from some parts left about the Democratic Party is seeing the Democratic Party as a, as a monolith. Um, in fact, the Democratic Party is a coalition party. There are coalition members, including unions, African-American groups, Latino groups, women's rights groups. Um, all of these groups make up the sort of broad coalition of the Democratic Party. And we don't always agree, uh, but I think we need to stick in that coalition. And I think we are better off fighting uh, for the Democratic Party line, for the soul and for the vision of the future of the Democratic Party. Um, because, you know, I used to say uh, a lot of people sort of want to take Medicare for all to the most conservative districts in the country and sort of hope that these sort of really conservative, um, you know, rural whites will be won over by the vision of Medicare for all. I say take Medicare for all to the Democratic voters who really believe in that. Uh, make the case in a primary. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And we've seen a number of Medicare for all champions uh, win uh, safe Democratic seats uh, over the last several several years. I think that the successes of candidates like Mondaire Jones, um, Ocasio-Cortez have made the people who talk about uh, sort of a Green Party or third party look increasingly absurd. The Green Party has existed for decades and they've yet to put a single person in any elected office in this country. And meanwhile, those of us who have advocated for Democrats to contest uh, or leftists and progressives to contest for Democratic primaries have an incredible number of points on the board in the form of actual representatives who hold power in the House and Senate. Sean, this is such a media question, but you know, uh, when if Biden's elected, I think he will be 52, 53 senators, 245 House Democrats. You know, one of the roles, uh, one of the role that the left will play is to pressure, to, uh, to bring pressure to try to, you know, move him to your part of the coalition on some issues. Is, is there a go-to person on this? As I say, this is a media question. Bernie and Elizabeth will be in their 70s. Is, is, is AOC, uh, you know, the most prominent go-to person or, or what? I actually think that the, you know, one of the things the press movement has been successful at is, is getting a number, an increasing number of representatives who either, you know, were progressive when they entered office or sort of saw the writing on the wall in terms of the way that the Democratic Party is moving. Um, you know, I think Ed Markey is now someone who's increasingly seen as a, a deeply progressive figure with real bona fides. Um, looking at the new members of the House, you've got Mondaire Jones and Richie Torres and Jamal Bowman entering from New York. Um, you've got a, an increasing number of progressive representatives in California. Georgette Gomez um, is going to be on the ballot uh, this November, uh, as is Beth Dolio in, in, in Washington. So we're, we're growing the caucus, and we already have folks like Deb Holland, um, Ayanna Presley, um, who I look up to. So I, I think that obviously AOC is the is the most prominent um, progressive. But, you know, Deb Holland is a deeply progressive woman um, who has val deeply progressive values and I think has a vision for how to get those those values across the finish line. So so I think that we have an increasing number uh, of members who are really starting to have influence. James. A guy like me will say, okay, Sean, good guy like you. You keep talking about all these wonderful things we do in New York City or Boston or somewhere in California. Show me where you win an election with a cooked TVI of less than plus 20 Democratic. Because, 
I mean, it, that, that's great. You can you, you can romp in the Bronx and you can romp in Brooklyn. You can romp in Boston, you know. But so what's the real difference between, you know, having a, a, a very liberal person or a very progressive person? When is the progressive movement going to demonstrate that it's something other than an urban a, a core urban coalition? Sure. Well, two thoughts here. Uh, one is I was actually one of the more public advocates for beginning the strategy in the safer Democratic seats, um, because I think that it's a place where the sort of progressive message is really going to play well. And I think you take the message to where it plays well. Um, but I have argued um, recently in an interview with Michael Grunwald and in the Atlantic piece that progressives do have something to say in swing seats. Um, but that what we've done is, is we have not tailored our message to that audience um, that, that, that we want to hear it. And I argued if we are going to take our message to swing seats, what we should focus on is a f- pharmaceutical agenda, lowering drug prices, um, injecting more competition into the pharmaceutical markets by allowing the government to um, competitively license overpriced drugs. I've argued that family leave is a, is a swing district issue uh, that progressives have, can embrace. And I've ar- also argued that climate change is a swing district district issue. And if you talk to members um, who have progressive values, who have won in swing districts, they'll tell you the same thing, which is those three issues really are winners. There are other parts of the progressive agenda that aren't winners, but you don't need to run on every part of your agenda in every district in the country. And I would like to start to see uh, more successes there. We have the, the sort of green shoots of this with members like Katie Porter, who are progressive and who did flip a a, a house seat in, in California. Um, but in the coming coming years, I would really like to see progressives take more seriously this idea of a swing seat strategy. And I will give you one other name, uh, Candace Valenzuela, who we did some polling on behalf of the bold pack uh, of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus for her in Texas 24, uh, something someone I deeply support, uh, is progressive. And she is in a swing seat um, in Texas. And I think she has a real shot at winning. And I think once we start to win those races, we'll really have um, a case to make that the progressive agenda can play across the country. But it's certainly something that uh, I agree with you. I want to see more of. And I think that what we just need to do is we need to talk about the actual winning agenda in these races, um, which I think covers those three issues that I talked about, which we see as really being top priorities. I mean, I think you, you've got a, 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 a unbelievable, I think a very pragmatic approach to this. And I, you know, I, I know that you, I'm not very familiar with the progressive, but I call urbanist movement. But I suspect that among many people, you took a, a lot of grief for choosing to side with the Biden campaign. Am I correct in that? Uh, yes, I, I get a lot of grief uh, all the time. Uh, I try to take it in stride. Um, but I think that the grief is part of growing pains. I do think that there is a, a group of people who would rather sit on the sidelines and be morally pure than actually engage in uh, the actuality of politics that involves compromise. Um, I've understood for a long time um, that most people who work to actually get, you know, legislation across the finish line ended up being hated by a lot of the sort of most ideological people in their ranks. Um, but I'm, I'm willing to do that because I think it's more important that we actually enact this vision um, and make the democratic party the best party it can be uh, than, you know, like, that I don't get my feelings hurt by someone like Lennon Lover 69 on Twitter or something like that. 
<laughs> John, you, you have been a, a really interesting guest, but, but I must say there's one really big disappointment, and that is that you're a legend for dropping the F-bomb. We've been through 17 <laughs> minutes, Sean, and nothing. I'm pretty I'm good at it. Myself. <laughs> I mean, you want to give us a parting shot? I'm so fucking sorry. Um. <laughs> hey, Sean McElway, uh, you really are an interesting guest. I'm going to learn more about you. James is too. So thank you uh, so much for joining us. Stay in touch, man. I, I, you know, because I think you're, you know, I, I think you're developing a, a real sense of when to push and when to pull. And that's just the only way you get shit done is, you know, when you got an opportunity to push, you push. And when you have to pull, you pull. And I think let's you, get you, some uh, you, let's get some fucking shit done then. Well, James, I I love this show today, and I just want a couple of things are on my mind. I want to mention just in brief. One, Ron Johnson, the chair of that Senate Security Committee, put out a hatchet job accusing Joe Biden of a conflict of interest in Ukraine five years ago. This has been thoroughly vetted by honest appraisers, pro-democracy forces in Ukraine, the EU, the best investigative reporters for the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the New York Times, and they've all concluded what Vice President Biden did was absolutely appropriate, and it was an effort to root out corruption in Ukraine. Ron Johnson is trying to create a diversion. He's either a useful idiot for Trump or just a dumb partisan hack. Maybe there's no difference. Secondly, please read... Bart Gelman's piece that just came out in the Atlantic on the real ways that Donald Trump will try and might even be able to succeed in stealing this election. Gelman is a great reporter, and this is a frightening article. James Carville. Well, I'll tell you what's on my mind. I'm part of democratic culture, liberal culture, if you will. And it is the weakest, whiniest, most pessimistic, take it off the table, retreat, disgusting. It's all terrible. Everything is awful. Oh my God, what are we going to do? And until Democrats actually learn how to stand in and fucking stand up and do something, we're going to continue to be in retreat. All these Democratic groups do is they have these retreats, at least before the pandemic. And the party is always in retreat. When the hell have we had the last Democratic Independent Council? All right. In every in, in everybody is oh my god it's terrible this is going to happen that's going to happen that's why we lose and this we can say it on TV the problem with with liberalism is liberal culture and, and when, you know when you're in a political fight screw all the you know inclusion tolerance etc cetera, etc cetera. you got to get out there and goddamn fight and what I liked about you know this young Mister McElwee. He, he doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. He doesn't mind getting criticized. I like, you know, to, to, to the extent that, you know, Senator Booker is willing to put himself out of line. But we have got to stop this presentation we make to people where, we, well, you know, we got, oh, my God, and they well, got this and they got that. And that's the shit that kills us. And I've, I've been on this for a long time, and I, I just really profoundly, deeply believe this. You know, we at, at some we, we certainly have issues. We need to be for what we for. We need to stand up for our values. But sometimes you just got to get out there and say, "God damn it, let's go." And we just don't do that enough. And that's my general beef right now. That's an awful good one, 
Uh, anything else? No, it's good. I had my say. Yeah, you had your say, <laughs> you're, and you're dead right. And we had two really good guests. Uh, good. I, they were great guests. I, it's one of my favorite shows. And I, I thought that uh, I knew Center Book would be good because he's just a very, he's, he's just a very smart guy. And and I had uh, some faith that Sean would be good. And I, I thought he was an insightful young person. And we, you know, of course, we don't have enough young people on the show, so I'm glad we had him. Well, as I, you know, I think that, you know, I agree with everything you just said. And one of the things, uh, you know, I might even having Sean McAway on, it might even impress my son. We'll see. Um, anyway, <laughs> my daughter, I don't know. <laughs> that's a, that's a, sometimes a futile quest for us, isn't it? Um, listen, uh, this is, this has been a terrific show. I want to thank everybody out there for listening to 2020 politics war room, follow us on politics war room and at politics on socials, email us politics war room at gmail.com. That's politics war room at gmail.com. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five star review. We'll be back again next week with another good show as we count down to November three. Please register to vote and vote early if you can. Vote once, but vote early if possible. Take care and be safe and thank you.